Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. Uh, this week, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer of WebMD. Uh, Dr. White, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Sure. I'm honored to join you. I, I'm impressed uh, right before as we were chatting uh, with all that you've accomplished. So uh, kudos to you. Thanks thank- for having me. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I guess, uh, you know, maybe give us a little bit of a brief background of, you know, where you went to school, where you did residency and and kind of what led you to your role at at, uh, WebMD now. (laughs) Yeah. And and I have to tell you, it wasn't planned in in grade school and high school that I'd be part of a, you know, multimedia platform. You know, originally I thought uh, I was going to be a surgeon. I always knew I wanted to be a doctor, but I thought I'd be a surgeon. I, I went to college at the University of Pennsylvania, studied chemistry. Back then, everyone studied sciences to get into medical school. I, I don't, you know, can do any chemistry <laughs> right now. Uh, and then I went to Hanami, which is also in Philadelphia. I took some time between second and third year. You know, sometimes people do MD-PhDs. I did a master's of public health at, at Harvard at a time when MPHs weren't that popular. They become very popular now. But that really kind of started to change my philosophy of how I wanted to address healthcare, not just individual level, but policy level. Um, Then I did a residency in internal medicine at Duke. Uh, You know, a lot of those places, everyone does a fellowship. So I mean, literally everyone. So I I did a fellowship in health services research, how to study the healthcare system at Stanford. And then I came to Washington, D.C. about 20 something years ago. Uh, to work on health policy. So I'll take a break from there, but but that's been my trajectory. And, you know, I'm not a surgeon. I went into internal medicine. Uh, I thought I would be like a department chair at some point in time <laughs> in academia, and I, I don't do that, uh, but really have been open to different career paths. That's really interesting. So I guess I'm curious, you know, you, you spent some time in government at the FDA, mm-hmm. you spent time in in doing media at the Discovery Channel. Mm-hmm. I guess you know, have the were the were those opportunities just arose at you know the right time, and you you kind of made that segue, or or was that were those things you planned on getting involved in at some point? You know, I, I didn't plan really any of them except that I wanted to come to Washington to work on health policy, and I'll tell you, I still see patients. So I only see patients currently now one day a week. But throughout my entire time frame, at every job, I've always seen patients because fundamentally, I view myself as a physician and it's made my roles more enriching and I think it's made me a better policy maker. So for me, I've always, as I said, been interested in health policy. I viewed the media opportunities at Discovery Channel or WebMD to impact larger populations. So not just the patient in front of me, but bigger ones. So, so it's funny that you ask that because a lot of times people at first think, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm in health communication 
uh, or I'm in, you know, PR or something. And I'm like, uh, I'm a policy person. <laughs> so, so <laughs> even, you know, Discovery Channel, where I made a lot of shows on health topics, diabetes, cancer. I was trying to educate people. What do you do to control diabetes? What do you do about screening? At you know WebMD, it's been about how do I provide the best information because better information is going to lead to better health. You know the regulatory roles were kind of more clear cut. You know, am I going to approve a drug or not approve a drug? Am I going to approve a pay for a device? That's what I worked on at Medicare or not. But here's the thing: I've always been open to opportunities. So I never thought I'd go into a job and spend, you know, the next 30 years of my life there. And I've been one who's gone in and out of government because I think there's a lot of benefit to that. You, you bring different strengths to each of those types of positions and, and you try to, you know, make some improvements and then how they function. Very different, very different types of, of jobs and in even your daily activities. Very interesting. So I'm curious, maybe give us just an overview of your role at, at WebMD as chief medical officer. So what does that entail? Kind of what's your day-to-day -day and what's your kind of, and then also like your long-term kind of focuses? Sure. You know, I came to WebMD to think, how do we continue to iterate? Like we just don't want to be an online platform, which we're not. Um, so it wasn't to say, well, do we have enough diabetes content? Do we know if I have a heart disease content? We have a great editorial team. I wanted to talk about, do we extend to a book business? Do we extend our brand to a video business? How do we connect content to care? What are the acquisitions that we should make in terms of continuing to extend our brand? People search differently, right? Before in the old days, people, you're too young, people would search information, they'd print it all up, and then you know they'd give it to the doctor, and the doctor just would do whatever he or she was going to do. Now it's very much of a discussion. Now it's very much you search joint pain. You want a telemedicine visit right now. Why, why should you have to wait? Dermatology. Why can't you use an app if that you know fits your particular rather than wait three to four weeks or longer in some cities for a dermatology appointment? So it's really been thinking through those aspects. How do I promote thought leadership? That's been a big interest of mine. WebMD and Medscape certainly can be conveners to talk about important health topics, living donor liver transplant, uh, age-friendly healthcare. The pandemic changed a lot of my roles. I didn't come to WebMD to be a brand ambassador per se, right? To, to be involved in the media. But what we recognized during that time, WebMD is a well-established credible brand, credible brand and that we need to be out there. And it makes sense for the chief medical officer to be out there talking about the latest about COVID, now talking about monkeypox, talking about these other things, which we did here and there before the pandemic, but not in any systematic way. So that's really been my focus at WebMD and Medscape. Medscape. How do we continue to iterate the brand? How do we promote thought leadership? How do we connect search, that content, to actual care? Interesting. You know, it's funny. I, I noticed it looks like you do kind of a, a video interview series as well with, uh, uh, you know, kind of some of the movers mm -hmm. and shakers in, in the mm -hmm. world. I guess, how have you enjoyed doing that? And uh, how do, is that something kind of new that you started up at, at WebMD? It is. We really didn't do a lot of news or interviews. And during COVID, our CEO, Bob Briscoe, had decided we're going to put it all into context. So it's called, uh, you know, coronavirus in context to really help people, what do you do with all this information? And at the height of it, doing two or three interviews a day with leading thought leaders. It's funny you say that because I have a, a picture here 
in my office of our first hundred interviews because I thought, oh my gosh, we did a hundred interviews. <laughs> we ended up doing like four hundred and fifty, uh, given the time course of the pandemic. Uh, but it was great to be able to talk, you know, to these thought leaders. But I also wanted to interview non-conventional folks that aren't typically involved in healthcare. Tim Tebow, Ariana Huffington, you know, Susie Orman, as well as the Fauci's and, and, you know, Dr. Collins at NIH and the other experts, because they're also important messengers as well. I mean, people listen to them as well. I remember we interviewed the Blues Clues guy, uh, we interviewed Dr. Phil, and they have a voice, an important voice as well that can help educate folks. So, you know, it has been so successful. We established one uh, on digital health and, and tech. You know, we have one in, in cancer. And what we've learned is we really got a, you know, a news business up and running in terms of interviews. And I really have to give credit to our multimedia team because uh, people are like, oh, you just do this on Zoom. And I have to be honest, it, it, as you know, there's a little bit of post-production. There, there are some <laughs> fixes here and there. I might have been sent some equipment to help out, but they've done a great job. And, and that's how people want to get their information at times. And that's what you have to respond to. Everyone doesn't respond to text or print. Some people like video. Some people want to have it as an interview series. You have to meet people where they are in communicating health information. That's really interesting. So it's a, it sounds like, you know, under your time, WebMD is kind of evol evolving, you know, has always an information company, but it more of a multimedia company in a way, that just, which is pretty cool. It, and it's really a way that we connect people to care. So, you know, our acquisition of vitals and others uh, really is, is changing uh, how we are today than we were five, 10 years ago. Interesting. So you, you touched a little bit on this, you know, you still see patients one day mm -hmm. a week. I'm curious how, how has that, you know, enhanced your role at WebMD? You know, I imagine having kind of that still one foot in the clinical arena mm -hmm. and having contact with yeah. patients, uh, and patients don't know my day job, so they, they don't know what I do. And sometimes they'll say, oh, I saw this on WebMD. I was like, mm, I'll have to <laughs> address that <laughs> later. Um, but I'll tell you, I also did it at FDA. Remember, I've done it throughout my career. And it, it's been great because even at FDA, I would talk about, like, let me tell you what doctors and patients are really talking about. Like, we're talking about this, but that's not what patients are talking about. Or when we talk about e-prescribing and whether we'd make any requirements, PDMPs and others, I'd have to say, okay, let me explain how the day really works, you know, in terms of e-prescribing and safety alerts in terms of, as you know, you just start to minimize them over time. They have to be done the right way. It's been enormously helpful because when I'm in clinic, I hear what patients actually are talking about. I remember when I worked at Medicare and here I am working at Medicare and I'm thinking as a physician, how do I code these things? I'm like, I'm, you know, involved in that. But when it comes down to the actual day to day, I'm like, oh, whoa, wait a second. You know, what, what level is this? You know, I hear what they're talking about in, in terms of drug costs and others. You know, I recognize when they search, how that impacts their behavior because they come in. And I always ask patients nowadays, did you Google it? What are you concerned about? And, you know, I wish I had done that longer because then they'll tell me and I get a good sense of what they're concerned about or what's on their mind. And I just have always liked seeing patients and I feel it makes me better in my roles. Now, I'm going to be honest, it takes a lot of work to plan these things. It's like having two jobs that day because, you know, when early in the morning and late at night, I have a lot of emails to answer. Uh, and I'm still doing it. Some days I do wonder... <laughs> <laughs> like I saw patients yesterday 
I should keep doing this? Uh, but I, but I do because I, I think it makes me better in my roles. And I do stay up to date because sometimes every now and then I'm internal medicine. People will say to me, is it safe? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, you know, I, it's outpatient. It doesn't change that much. I try to stay up to date. I'm, you know, <laughs> I keep passing the boards. So I think I'm good. <laughs> that's awesome. No, that's really interesting. You know, that, you know, you've kept doing that because, you know, some people I imagine be like, oh, why don't you just do full time? But I, I think, yeah. you know, one, it's, you know, we, I, I get it. You know, as a clinician myself, we train all these years and we, we like yeah. taking care of patients and seeing that's patients. That's right. I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously it provides you, like you said, you know, frontline yeah. exposure to what is, you know, really going on in healthcare and kind of the, also the pain points that people may feel or, or misinformation that may be out there or anything like that. And uh, that's interesting. I'm curious, you know, what do you think has been the greatest benefit of, you know, the internet and multimedia making health and medical information so accessible? And then on top of that, what's been, you think, kind of some challenges that have arose from that? I think it empowers people. It in many ways can be an equalizer. I mean, there are issues of cost and access and high-speed internet, which is getting better. But it, it really changes the physician-patient relationship where the physician was all-knowing, very paternalistic. I tell you what to do and you do it. Whereas now, patients can learn much more about their disease condition or they can you know, do like our symptom checker and others, put their symptoms in, get some sense of what they might be having. It allows a great sense of community. So you can talk to other people with heart disease, other people with diabetes, other people with cancer. I think that is a huge game changer because we know that's what you know people want to do. They want to talk to other people. So that's been enormously game changing in terms of the relationship and empowering patients with knowledge. And as I said, if you get better information, you're going to have better health. And let's be realistic. Patients forget, you know, more than 50% of what the doctor said to them when they leave the office. So they, they need to have another credible source of information. The downside to your point is the same thing. There's a lot of misinformation on the web and people don't always know how to choose credible information. And I have patients say to me, oh, I went to a website. I went to a blog. I saw a patient who sadly microwaved hydrogen peroxide and put it in her ear because she had read that on the internet. She ended up with a bad burn on her ear. And I'm like, why, why did you do that? And, and say it like that. And she's like, you know, I read a blog and I was like, anyone can have a blog, you know, that, that doesn't mean they're an expert. A patient yesterday was asking me a lot of questions about um, chlamydia and you know, I was glad it was a telephone visit, but I was glad she called because she's like, you know, I'm seeing so many different things in terms of what do I need, you know, post-treatment? Do I need to be tested, retested? You know, when can I be sexually active? And I thought, good for her, young woman, 19 years old, um, getting credible information. And I did say, what what sources did you go to to look? And, and it, it was time. She's like, I'm not sure. I said, did you go to CDC? She's like, I'm not sure. And I thought, okay, well, we have to go over. How do you tell? How do you know? And she's like, I, I don't want to listen to my friends anymore. I'm like, good idea, because I don't <laughs> go to doctors. Uh, but, but this is the whole point of how do we make sure we get credible information? Because sometimes on the internet and in social, and they're working on algorithms, even if I say a lot of negative things on your post in, in you know, mean comments or other things, in search, it's going to be elevated because it's going to have a lot of engagement. And then people are going to see that. 
So we have to address some of those issues because in health, misinformation can cause significant harm to you personally. And that's what we forget. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's interesting when I, uh, as I told you before we started recording, I mm -hmm. spent a lot of time in uh, Ohio and I worked at the Cleveland Clinic for a little bit. And I remember there was, I think it was a cardiac surgeon and you may even be familiar with this book. There was a cardiac surgeon and a cardiologist that got together and wrote a book. I think it was mm -hmm. called the Heart 411, if you've heard of that. Mm -hmm. And I remember their, they said their main motivation was, is that they, they just one night for the heck of it, Googled, you know, mm -hmm. what was, what was out there uh, for heart information. They said they were shocked at how, yeah. how much misinformation and how much uh, false, just completely yeah. untrue. And so they wanted to essentially set the record straight. So I think you make such, such a great point on that. It's not just, you know, providing information, but provide and not just information that people maybe engage with or find amusing, but uh, information that's both credible and accurate and helpful. Mm. No, that's, that's interesting. I was looking it up. It's Steve Nissen and um, uh, another physician, but it, it's a great point. I guess going off of that, you know, given your background that you've worked for a variety of organizations, as mm -hmm. we talked about, you know, you've been in academia, obviously, when you're in residency and fellowship, and then you worked for a couple of different government agencies. Mm -hmm. And then now you're in the, the private sector and, and mm -hmm. still practicing. Where do you see because some people go obviously to places like WebMD for their information. Mm -hmm. Some people go to the CDC, some people go to, you know, other, you know, resources. Where, where do you see kind of those different sectors when it comes to providing information? I'm just kind of curious on your yeah. thoughts on that. You know, I think the CDC site overall gives good information, government sites. And I say this from working in the government, but they're always not as effective in communicating that health information well. It's not always in plain language. It tends to be very text-based. We know a lot of people like to learn by videos. Um, they may not often be elevated in search in terms of you know, one of the top three or four. People don't often scroll down on their phone. We know people are using mobile primarily to search. So they have a critical role. But part of it you know, nowadays has been trust. And in the past, everyone would say they trust the CDC, they trust the FDA. I think we need a lot of rebuilding of that. You know, on the physician side, I think we all know good sites to go to. Many of them, you know, are fee-based in, in terms of we get them through our health system. Much of it is peer-reviewed. So that's different for us. I, I wish more consumers could have access to it. And everyone's at a different literacy level as well. So, you know, I think places like WebMD, what I'm very proud of, we review every piece of content on our site. And if you look closely at the end of the page, it'll tell you who reviewed it with a hyperlink and it'll tell you the date. And the date is very important because things can change. So you wanna know, are you reading something from 2014? Are you reading something from 2022? Uh, most sites don't do that. And, and we really should think about you know, how we empower people to, to really know what's credible and what's not. That's interesting. I guess kind of going off that, and you touched a little bit on this, how do you think patients can best empower themselves in their own health by using WebMD? And I guess, how do you, and you touched, you talked a little bit about this, but how do you think you, how do you counsel your patients when you see them in this aspect as well? Because obviously there's the point where you're visiting the doctor, but most of it, yeah. most of your health happens outside the doctor's office or the hospital. That's absolutely right. I use that line all the time. Health happens outside the doctor's office. So sure, I care about your blood pressure in the doctor's office, but I really care what's happening outside the doctor's office on a daily basis because it's going to be those 
daily choices that you make over time that impact your health. So I'm internal medicine. The things that I see primarily are chronic diseases where lifestyle plays a critical role. And it goes back to information. There's so much misinformation on diet. There's so much information on exercise, so many fads. Everyone's trying to make a buck. So how do we help people understand what are those important principles when it comes to healthy eating? What are those important principles of, you know, physical activity? And I'll tell you, diet and exercise are huge sections on WebMD that people come to because they want that credible information that's not about losing 10 pounds in the next month, but about looking over time where you're going to be. So I'm really trying to empower people and saying, you have a lot of control over your health. And for many people, that's a change in mindset. And you may not even know, I wrote these books called Take Control of Your Heart Disease Risk, Take Control of Your Cancer Risk, Take Control of Your Diabetes Risk. Most of those are not caused by genetics. There is a genetic component, but most are not. So how do you um, change lifestyle? How do you address sleep? How do you address stress? How do we help people understand that? So there's so much conversation nowadays about patient centricity. How do we make the patient the center of care? How do we address patient's expectations? And this is great, but patients also have to play a role in their own care as well. The other thing I'm excited by are the number of wearables in terms of getting the amount of data in, in terms of your heart rate, your sleep score, your heart rate variability, you know, your steps. You know, I always tell patients, let's look at trends over time. Right. So they're not medically great. There's going to be permutations that, you know, your 50 less, 50 fewer steps one day. Don't get, you know, agitated by it. But it's still good to collect this data over time. We need a better way to package that and give it to the doctor. So we don't have to, you know, there's no way we can go through their phones and their logs to sort it all out. You know, it's interesting. Do you, do you foresee, you know, in a sense, prescribing, you know, either some of these apps or, or wearables as, as kind of a new wave of, of both digital health, but also just kind of helping patients yeah. empower themselves? I personally think insurance should cover some of these devices or apps, at least for a period of time, because we don't want those people who are already well secure financially to be the only ones that can afford it. So I'm a big supporter of continuous glucose monitors, even for patients with prediabetes, certainly with type 2 diabetes. Right now, a lot of times insurance only covers it if you're on insulin, which really doesn't make a lot of sense because if I can give them the feedback in terms of their food choices and their activities, that's going to change behavior. And I wore one for a month. I, I don't have prediabetes, but I was interested in how it worked. I was impressed with the data that it gave. Even devices like Lumen, when you breathe into it and it tells you whether you're burning carbs or fat, it, it's really helpful for understanding your metabolism. I know I snack too much at night and that's why I'm burning carbs in the morning. I have to change that. But the point is everybody wants their own data, right? I can collect data on you and then give you recommendations that are truly personalized. I can use apps that take pictures of food and tell me what the food content is. You don't have to count calories. You don't have to look things up. You can use apps to do that. Sure, there's going to be some errors when we use AI, but these are trends that are important. And what I want to see is that more people have access to it. That's, I think, is going to be the future when we're saying we can use this data. And I think wearables are going to continue to get better. Right now, it's really like smart jewelry. I have one. <laughs> I wore a ring for a while, but I think they're going to be embedded in our clothes. We're starting to see some of that for remote patient monitoring. There's something called nearables 
right? So not a wearable, but you have the device close to you and it will collect your data, particularly on sleep. So lots of exciting. I've been talking to someone about tattoos that you can wear that will be sensors to measure blood pressure because that's been a variable that's hard to measure. But think if we could get, you know, instead of ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, which nobody wants to do, but, you know, this continuous reporting of blood pressure, even better than heart rate in terms of reducing cardiovascular disease. So I think there's a lot of promise, but we need to make sure that those people who don't have financial resources aren't left behind. That's fascinating. Um, I'm curious, you know, how much do you think, you know, we talked about misinformation and, you know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of these also, and you talk about, you know, treating chronic disease and lifestyle and habits mm-hmm. and things like that. You know, a lot of these things I feel like start when we're young and, you know, even okay. at, at the child age, I guess, how much do you think quality health, providing quality health education, you know, in a multimedia format, such as like what you're working on mm-hmm. WebMD could really help, you know, future generations, you know, develop, no, like you yeah. said, know which diet is the right diet, how much exercise should play into theirs. Mm-hmm. And I think, what do you think would be the best ways to do that? I think it's critical in terms of you know diet and lifestyle. Let's be honest. Physicians are not the best in <laughs> that information. We don't really learn it. We don't always practice it. So we're not always the best. When we do give it, what do we say? You need to go to the gym. You need to, you know, lose weight. We give them no prescription on how to do that. And then when some of our specialty organizations do it, it's the typical still, I will lecture you, right? I will (laughs) tell you (laughs) in a talk and then you will listen. And why do some of these people that are misinforming uh, people succeed? They're doing it in a way that they can relate to. They're just talking to them. They're showing themselves in the kitchen. They're promising, you know, benefit. And we need to do better in terms of meeting people where they are. And that's what I said to you. Some people like to see a slideshow. Our slideshows are very successful on, on WebMD. Some people want to watch a video. Some people want to watch, uh, you know, just someone else like them talking to them about it or be part of a community as part of a, you know, maybe it's a Facebook group or another type of group, but they're going to watch it through reels. I think what we need to do in terms of healthy lifestyles is use all those platforms but here's what often is missing, even when healthcare workers go in that space, they don't look at the metrics. So you have to look at the metrics. What's been succeeding and why? If I asked, you know, five doctors my age, you know, right now about a video, they'd all want to talk for 10 minutes. And I'd be like, no one's, <laughs> that's not how, you know, consumers are going to listen on a health thing. You got to make it more interesting. And, you know, it's different because health providers on Medscape, they're going to watch it because that's how we learned. And that's how we like to learn as well. But but that's where we have to be. We, we really have to be multimedia, but it's multi-platform that's driven by metrics. I guess kind of as we're getting to a close here, mm-hmm. you know, you've had a lot of interesting, different interesting positions in your background, mm-hmm. like we've talked about. I guess what's your advice for physicians that are interested in becoming mm-hmm. more in, in, involved in like medical media, either from... Mm-hmm you know, producing it themselves or maybe, sure. you know, or getting it consult or being a part of, you know, guest hosting things, yeah. or, you know, those types of opportunities. And a lot of people, you know, are, are posting and creating. I, I don't, I, if I didn't, wasn't already in my role, I don't think I could get in my role. <laughs> given <laughs> the amount that, that younger physicians know. So a couple of things. One, I would say is I've always been open to ideas. I never was this mindset, I'm going to do this and I'm not going to consider anything else. It took some time because I thought mm, media, sometimes people are dismissive of it, but you can reach a lot of people that way. 
and, and that matters. The other thing that I've done that I'm always responsive to is to reach out to people. A lot of people reach out to me on social media and LinkedIn and say, hey, I want to write for WebMD or I want to write for Medscape or I want to interview you. You know, I have a podcast like, like you do or others. I'm pretty responsive and most people are. And that's important to do. I always used to do that. I told someone recently, but it was old school. I used to write letters. <laughs> so I respect that when people reach out and I think others are as well. And in many ways, you have to create the opportunity. So the role of chief medical officer didn't exist at WebMD prior to my arrival. There was a chief medical editor. There were some other roles. But I helped craft it. And, and that's what people can do as well, especially nowadays, help craft the role and find balance. You know, early on, you may not be able to substitute a media career for the income that you need. So how do you balance it and, and find time? To do it. But there's so many more opportunities and, and we definitely need more physicians um, and other health workers involved in, in media. Excellent. My, my last question, we ask everybody this, what, what do you do outside of uh, your work to kind of help help you balance your, your life out? <laughs> yeah. So I have young children, uh, two young boys. My youngest is learning how to play cards. <laughs> so oh, <wow>. Lately, <laughs> I've been doing crazy eights <laughs> for that and war. You know, oh yeah, yeah. He's, he's still at the age where he cheats uh, <laughs> but that that's a lot of fun so i've been playing cards <laughs> or not with uh you know seven-year-olds and uh i'm actually trying to learn more french so i i have a couple conferences that i'm going to over the next few months in europe and i thought you know it's good to learn another language uh keeps your brain healthy uh so i'm trying to learn uh, a little bit of French. That's awesome. Well, Dr. White, thank you so much for uh, taking time out of your very busy schedule to to Absolutely. join us on the podcast and uh, really appreciate a really interesting conversation and and uh, enjoyed hearing more about your your unique background and what you're working on at WebMD. Well, thanks for having me. And people can always reach out to learn more. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or a review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.